Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Let's kick, kick off. Let's kick off. Let's kick right. off. Uh, so it's uh, it's Wednesday. It's Morocco, France tonight, and we're very much Moroccan. We're all Moroccan this evening, aren't we? Mm, je ne sais pas. Well, no, I am. Why? I love the bit about you know the player dancing with his mum. You see that the Moroccan player? It'd be a big first for the Moroccan nation. Is it because you've lost all of your French connections? Because we're no longer part of mainland Europe. Are you making a political a, statement? I've got a very good friend who's French, actually, and she did, she she um, listened to the radio show and got very angry the other night when I, when I said I was supporting Morocco. So maybe I'll keep it on the down low. But um, I did. I have been to Morocco, and I had that experience. Well, in that case, I mean, no, you're practically a national treasure. I've also been to France. Um, in, in Morocco, I, I'm sure I must have mentioned this before. I went to. We went to Marrakesh. I was with my kids when they were teenage, quite young teenagers. We went to Marrakesh Market. Have you ever been there? I have, yeah. It's yeah. busy, isn't it? It's incredibly busy and it's a very if you're if you're not used to that sort of environment, it's actually slightly intimidating if I'm honest. I mean, you've got everything. The traffic, I'm here to say they need some lollipop people over there in Marrakesh. It's very poorly managed. Uh also there are just it's just a plain fact that young women get attention from the men and it could it got slightly out of hand. And there were also, did you see the juggling monkeys? No, I saw a lot of snakes. Yes, snakes. snake charming is a snake thing. charming, and you've got uh, uh, monkeys um, who are sort of hurling things around. It, it's all just a long way from East West Kensington, okay, yeah. which is obviously why we went. But it was it was perhaps a little more than I could cope with. Anyway, the day after, we hadn't really been able to buy anything at the market because of, we were surrounded by by people. Um, I went back to the market on my own. No attention at all. Well, that's the problem. So. I was managed. I I was completely uh, left alone. <laughs> I bought a rug and went back to the hotel. Just a little bit irritated, if I'm honest. But anyway, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to briefly mention um, this slightly unwelcome intervention about the Me Too movement from noted thespian Joanna Lumley. Have oh you God, seen we've this? made quite a leap there. Well, we? no, because it's sort of all about the double standards that surround this. You know, I I think I honestly was a bit hacked off that I was able to 
shop unmolested in any way, shape or form in Marrakesh. Well, you can't have it both ways. Well, that's what I'm saying. I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, we're all... I'm owning my own hypocrisy. Um, but Joanna Lumley has said this thing, which I think she said before, where... And she's it's not completely unknown for women of this age to make slightly unhelpful remarks. Um, it's all along the lines of um, women used to be tougher and she believes it's the new fashion for people to say they're a victim. Looking back on her early modelling days, she said women looked after themselves and were tough as she talked about sexism and harassment in the magazine Prospect. We were quite tough and looked after ourselves, she said. The new fashion is to be a victim, a victim of something. It's pathetic. We've gone mad. Well, that's the view of 76-year-old Joanna Lumley, and she's been more or less taken apart by a journalist called Charlie Gowans Eglinton in The Times today, who just says, I understand that my generation in particular, I'm a millennial, age 34, is seen as a bunch of moaners. We moan about property prices, cost of living, uh, plateaued low salaries. But if those were real issues, then our country would be in crisis. We're just being snowflakes, right? And then we come to violence against women. Lumley isn't the first to suggest that the whistleblowers in the hashtag MeToo movement needed to toughen up, that they were blowing things out of proportion. It's a go-to when it comes to quashing women's claims. And she just goes on to list a very familiar... Um, load of hassle, some of it minor, some of it major, that she's had to put up with since she was 11. Mm. And we, we know, I won't repeat what she went through because it's entirely the sort of stuff that my daughters have put up with that I've had to a degree that your daughter's probably putting up with. I mean, it's it's just unending, apparently. But it just doesn't help when senior representatives say things like Joanna Lumley felt the need to say. I wonder whether it's ever crossed Joanna Lumley's mind that actually what might have happened is that women weren't able or didn't feel that they could talk openly to each other about their experiences. Mm. Because I, she's not the only woman of that age no, she isn't. to come out with that kind of line. You and I have worked with some women uh, in broadcasting who aren't particularly welcoming uh, of our generation's ability to have a right old moan in order to make things better. But I think quite often it comes from that simple place of just only ever really hearing your own voice. Yeah, You and I talk loads. Our generation of women talks loads. The next generation under us, you know, they emote, they talk and emote and everything's on display. So we know more about everybody else's experiences. So I just always feel really sad when I hear an older woman saying that because just, you know, listen to what everybody's saying now, love, and sure up. Yeah, of course you wonder. It's, not, it's just unhelpful. Why should you have to toughen up about something that makes you feel really uncomfortable and also she's in a really gilded position i mean i don't i don't mean to you know diss the woman personally but clearly nothing horrendous happened to her what happened to her along the way she managed to bat off or if something really horrendous did happen to her i'm really sad that she doesn't feel able to share it with us and have a group hug yeah it's just it's just incredibly unhelpful and can she please pipe down? I suppose we ought to say as well, we don't know whether she was asked directly about this. It's very difficult when other interviews are reported and you don't always know what it was the journalist yeah. asked. And the, the yeah, the question might have been, do you think that this yeah, current generation yeah. of women should Need really to toughen, toughen up? up? Yes. But if I were ever asked that question, I'd say, yes, absolutely, stop complaining. Pull yourselves together. It's just a bit of groping. For heaven's sake, we've all put up with it. Well, hopefully you'll be able to get out your Moroccan rug.
<laughs> roll it across the room and say, let me tell you a story. Make yourself comfortable. I'm about to begin. Oh, God. Uh, we've had more from Ruthie. We're just going to do one anecdote today from Ruthie because otherwise we'd all be overloaded. It'd be like eating the entire box of celebrations on Christmas morning. It, it really would. But Ruthie, <laughs> your showbiz life continues to, de- to delight. Uh, uh, shall we share the working with Sting anecdote? Because I used to have a thing about Sting. Okay. Well, look, I'm going to give you that sheet and I'll hand over to you right at the bottom. Here comes Ruthie. She is our correspondent in New York. Uh, In my former career as an actress, I've endured a string of humiliating jobs and auditions. Appearing in Panto and Rochdale was a real low point. (laughs) Then there was the time I was in a naked version of A Christmas Carol in Manhattan. I even once auditioned for a voiceover in New York where they wanted me to sneeze in a British accent. There have also been some highlights. I was in North Carolina appearing in a production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch when my agent called me to say that a theatre in Utah was working with Sting and would like me to audition for his musical The Last Ship. By some miracle I was cast as the female lead Meg. Rehearsals were interesting. Every so often the director's phone would ring and she'd dash off out of earshot to discuss ideas and script changes with the Sting himself. He never materialised during rehearsals or indeed on the first three nights of the show. But on the fourth performance, our director walked into the women's dressing room while I was halfway through gluing a false eyelash to my face when she quietly confessed, he's here, Sting's here. Cue insane screaming from my castmates and me accidentally gluing my eyelids shut. At the curtain call, once the applause had subsided, the man himself sauntered onto the stage and shook my hand. I can see him sauntering, I really can. In my ever-so-cool, nonchalant British fashion, I promptly burst into tears, which was mortifying. After the show, Sting had secretly set up a party for us, and within an hour of discarding my costume, I found myself sitting with Sting on a sofa discussing the black country. Trudy, his wife, is from Bromsgrove. Not strictly the black country, but I wasn't about to correct him, obviously. (laughs) He complimented my performance, and he was generally fabulous and charming. It was thrilling, if slightly surreal. For Sting too, I imagine, and I wouldn't be surprised if he isn't writing a podcast right now, (laughs) recalling the time he was held hostage on a sofa in Utah by an insane British actress. Oh, Ruthie, thank you for giving us an insight into your showbiz world. She is from Bromsgrove, Trudy Styler, and you're right. Technically, it is not in the black country, but I'm glad you made that clear. I like yeah. the notion that Sting might be writing to a pop. What podcast would he be writing to, I wonder? Well, the Tantric Sex podcast, I imagine. Oh, God, the... the poor man. He never managed to live that one down, well, no, did he? That's when I went off him, because there's no way I could have kept up my interest, even with Sting, for as long as six or seven hours. Yeah, but I think, I think the tantric sex thing was misinterpreted wasn't it? Was it? I think it just means that you start thinking about having sex with somebody right at the beginning of the day when you've got a date with them later on that evening and mm. let's face it we've all met people like that they just don't call it tantric sex <laughs> they call them men yep. no. Uh, no 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 we can't say no no, we no, no. no. I want, but I, it's worth asking how long would the tantric sex podcast go on for isn't it? Seven and a half hours <laughs> Uh, not all men, Jane. Oh, hashtag, hashtag not, not all men. All men. Not all men no. uh, would you like to introduce our amazing guest today? Um, we'll do a couple of uh, amusing 
emails afterwards. Yes, I will introduce our guest today because I thought this was, well, I mean, we should say, um, I think you use the expression showing our pants and we're still quite new to doing this live radio show on Times Radio. And the, this programme is going to evolve. I mean, we've only been doing it since October. It's already changed a bit. I'm sure it will change again. And we are both really interested. We're very invested in the idea of talking to people who aren't actually... Uh, selling or promoting anything, but I've just lived through something. And I think that's the case with, with Teresa, our guest today. Yeah. And the first person experience uh, when it isn't someone who's shoved themselves into the limelight. So I think you and I are really, really mm. uh, fond of hearing. Well, so... they're the best voices. They're, I mean, the word authentic is bandied around all the time. But the, if you listen to Teresa, this is her way of telling us about her life. And her circumstances are not unique. They're probably not as uncommon as, frankly, um, some people might like to think. But you simply don't hear it talked about. Mm. And Teresa is 64. Um, she is a business support manager by profession. She's had an interesting and very full life. And she was adopted as a toddler, as she'll explain in the interview. But when she was in her 20s, she really had this longing to find out more about her birth family. It's you know, lots of people would feel that way if they'd been adopted. And things were very different then. And you'll hear in her voice the very raw, the rawness of her experience, the isolation of it. She was left largely on her own and to her own devices to discover that she was born to siblings, uh, a girl of 16 and her 14-year-old brother. So, th by the way, this I should say, if this is something you're not prepared to listen to, if you're not ready to listen to something like this, if it's triggering in some way, then obviously you don't need to listen to Teresa's experience. But I think a lot of people will be really delighted to hear that Teresa has had such a, a full and very happy life. I think that's important to emphasise, isn't it? So here is So Teresa. in my late teens and very early 20s, I wasn't particularly interested in babies. Um, I was busy with other things. And then my sister had her first child, and shortly after, my brothers had both of their first. And as an auntie, that changed everything. I um, had feelings for these children that I had never experienced before and made me feel very maternal and suddenly realised that actually babies were as wonderful as everybody said. Um, and people were beginning to say, oh, he looks like you or she looks like you or oh, I remember when you cut your first tooth. And I realised that nobody would be able to give me any of those answers or um, any of those milestones for me unless I could find out some more about my first beginnings. Um, I was nearly two and a half when I was adopted. So there was a lot of firsts that had been missed by the time I got to my adoptive parents. So that was what took me off on the on the trek to begin with, was simply just to find out some more and see where you fit into a, to a family in terms of looks and, and genetics. And did you tell anybody in your adoptive family about what you were doing? No, I didn't. I knew that my mum, it was one of her great fears that um, both myself and my sister, who was also adopted from different circumstances, um, might want to do that at some point. And she was always very worried that she might lose us as a result of that. Um, ironic, given the circumstances, when I thought perhaps I would lose them the other way around. So talk us through what you then did. And you did all of this alone then, totally, yes. totally alone. Yes. And in those days, there was no counselling or training or anything like that. You know, these sorts of things, you just 
picked up yourself and, and ran with it. So I went to my local social services, first of all. And this is, um, sorry, to ter- Teresa, we probably should know exactly when this was, the 1980s? Yes. Yeah, yeah. OK, got you. 80s, yeah. yeah, carry on. Yeah. Um, when we were not anywhere near as aware about how people might feel or how things impact people as we are today, thank goodness. Um, so my local social services um, established that I came under the care of Islington Social Services in those days and what was the London County Council. Um, and they were able for to set up for me a meeting for me to go in and view my notes at Islington. Um, so I was given a date and a time and an address, and that's what I did. I turned up supposing that I was going to read some very interesting um, things about myself and my family, um, only to find that it was really quite different. So can you just tell us what exactly it said in the notes? So in the notes, at the top, it started off that my um, mother was only 16, which didn't surprise me. Um, In those days, a lot of very young mothers were, you know, leaned on to get their children adopted or it was circumstances they couldn't bring them up on their own. But as I read down further, it listed the father who was listed as her brother, who was only 14 at the time. So you're sitting in a room on your own in a council building, reading through all of this. Uh, I mean, it must be a moment that you have relived many times. Uh, I, I almost don't want to ask you to relive it again for us, but that's exactly what yeah. I'm doing. What did you feel? To begin with, I, I had to go back and read it again because I thought I must have made a mistake. And then I just began to feel really quite sick, to be honest, Um, I have been brought up in a Catholic family, gone to Catholic schools, and people didn't even have sex before marriage. They certainly, incest was an absolute, a real, you know, it was off the scale in terms of what was acceptable. Um, And so to start with, I just kept reading and rereading, shock, revulsion, and then utter shame. And the thought then that, I could never, ever tell my parents about this. In fact, I wasn't sure I could tell anybody about this because people would think differently of me if they knew where I had come from was what I thought. So in my head, this was just the end of everything as I knew it. Mm. And Sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to ask you, I mean, before handing that folder to you, the, the, the people in the council officers would have read it too they would have known what was in that folder wouldn't they you would you would have thought so and to this day I still don't know what was going through their heads or whether they did read it maybe they didn't maybe they just pulled it out and I left it they made it very clear to me that I couldn't take anything away so if I wanted to make any notes they had given me a, a notepad and a pen but I don't know if they had read it I don't know if they'd read it and not known what to do with it Or, as I say, it was such different days, um, you know, that sort of 40 years ago, that people didn't think, I don't think, about the impact of of information like that. Nowadays, you would be getting counselling beforehand. Somebody would have checked it all out beforehand. You would probably have a mediator. But in those days, it was just, I think it was not, I don't think it had been that long when people could, A, that they could access their notes once they were 18, and B, that you could be put on the register that was about people looking either for parents or parents looking for children. 
mm. um, who'd gone through the adoption services. So I don't think that had been in place for very long. And so perhaps, you know, I have to err on the side that perhaps ignorance was was what did it rather than just couldn't be bothered. So you put the papers back in the file and handed it back in and summoned your dignity and, and walked out, I suppose. I took my scraps of paper with me, yes. Yeah. yeah. And who did you tell? I didn't. I walked around for ages, um, just feeling more and more sick and more and more shamed by what I'd read until finally I took myself home and I didn't tell anybody for 20 years. It was just something I Gosh. knew that I could not explain to anyone. I, I, was, I was revolted at me. So what would other people think if I thought that of myself? I couldn't take the risk. And I thought that people would turn their backs on me. I thought my parents would be absolutely devastated and they would just say, well, sorry, you know, that isn't what we bought mm. into. So off you go. I think, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say, I mean, apart from the in incredible uh, emotional overload and damage of all of that, there is that sudden knowledge as well, isn't there, that actually for you to have children of your own would become a more complicated and possibly dangerous thing to do. Absolutely. That was the thing that changed overnight for me as a result of it. Because I, through my own ignorance and lack of knowledge and because I didn't discuss it with anybody, I had the impression that if I had children, I ran the risk of having children with either very severe mental or physical disabilities. And that would be as a result of my parentage, which I could not inflict on another person, knowing how I was feeling at that point. And so I made the decision that I could never have children. Were you in a relationship at the time? I was, yes. And I subsequently ended that because if I was going to have to explain why I couldn't have children, then I would have to explain the whole thing. And so, and I wasn't prepared to do that at all. I felt nobody should ever know this. And so I broke it off for other reasons. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Teresa, you break up with your then partner. And um, how long after this 
Did your birth mother make it known that she wanted to meet you? Very soon after, actually, I had put my name on the register when I had visited the local social services. And within a few months, they had contacted me again to say that her name had come up and she was interested in meeting me if I was still interested in meeting her. Um, and I obviously didn't say anything about what I already knew, but said, yes, I most certainly did want to meet, to meet her. And they came back to me with a, a date and a time and an address in London to go to. And you went? I went and a very odd start to it all. She opened the door and there was no um, lovely, happy, fluffy ending. She was very cold. I had not realised until I got there just how angry I was about all of it. Um, I'd had to give up having children. I'd had to change everything that I was thinking about my life. I'd given up relationships. And at that point in my head, clearly I blamed her for that. And so I wasn't in the best frame of mind to um, go into such a meeting and probably should never have done it like that. But she let me in and there was a gentleman sitting in the corner who she introduced as a friend of hers. But it was very clear to me that that was her brother. That was my father. Everybody in the room, we all looked alike. Um, and he was more than casually interested. He never took his eyes off me the whole time I was there. And it was quite it's very hard to describe if you've always been with your genetic family. It's very hard to describe when you first see somebody that actually looks like you. And so that part of the meeting was actually quite positive in that I saw somebody that looked like me and I looked like them and all the things I'd heard about my siblings and their children I could see was um, visible in front of me. But I just launched off into a tirade of questions and blaming and really getting quite upset and not really giving her a chance to speak. And it wasn't long before she calmed it all down and said, look, you've obviously not in the best frame of mind. This isn't going anywhere. Why don't you go away, write down all the questions you've got and let's meet again. And then we can try and answer them for you and do this in a, in a much calmer way. And did that ever happen? No. Because I accepted that at face value, realising myself that I wasn't doing it the right way and wasn't getting any of the answers that I wanted. And so I accepted the phone number and went off. And over the course of the next few days, thought, yes, actually, that's a really good idea. I sat down and wrote out the questions that I wanted to get answers for. And then a couple of weeks later, rang the number to reconvene the meeting only to find that the number was unobtainable. Gosh. Tried through the operator. No, the number was disconnected. I went back to the place where we'd met. There was nobody there. Nobody either side could tell me anything. Um, didn't know the people that had lived there, knew nothing about them. And so now I've got all these half-answered questions, which just made the whole situation even worse for me. And still, um, Teresa, you're on your own. Nobody else knows about this. No, no, absolutely not. And now, even more so, because I've messed up this meeting by being so angry and so upset. And so not only have I got the first secret, now I can't tell anybody why I couldn't even find out anymore. Mm. So I didn't. I buried it. 
I'm sure lots of our listeners this afternoon, Therese, would want both Jane and I to say that wasn't your fault. I mean, you know, you had every right to be angry. There were three people in that room who needed to have a very open conversation. You are the youngest and most vulnerable one in that mm. room. So, uh, you know, I'm, it, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, actually, to think of just how vulnerable you must have been at that time. Other people who have since known your story, can they tell you a bit more about how all of that changed you to them? Or do they think that you managed to keep it completely and utterly hidden away from them too? You know, your your adoptive family and your friends. I was very good at it. Nobody knew and nobody suspected. And they certainly were as surprised as me when I did finally tell anyone. But no, as far as they were concerned, I became the best auntie and I loved my nieces and nephews and had a really good time with them growing up and still have a good relationship. So everybody just thought I was a great auntie and I just used to fob off questions about, you know, surely you want children, you want to get married? Yes, yes, but I've never met the right one. And, you know, and I was able to just keep skirting around it and people accepted that. In the end, you did decide to tell one friend um, who I think had worked as a counsellor. Is that right? Yes, yes. And I'm not even sure why that happened. I certainly hadn't planned to say anything that day. Um, We were on quite a long car journey together and we were just generally chatting about childhood and that sort of thing. And I think that it all... If you've ever... People who've kept secrets will probably be able to tell you that you put little compartments in your head and you can put everything into little boxes. And I was very good at keeping all of that separate. And I've had quite a lot of health problems over the years. And I'd managed to box all that off as well. I was not able to take up the career I wanted in sport for the same reason. And just for some reason, my boxes just started opening. And it just all came out in a great long flood of, of um, disclosure. And... The first thing that he said to me was, why on earth would you think that people would not love you the same as they love you already? Why would you think that what happened to you and in the start of your life had anything to do with the person that you are today? You silly, silly woman, you know? And he was like, just do not even give that a thought. People want you, people love you for you, not for anything else. And to think that you've been carrying that around and never told anybody is just horrible. Mm. And so that was the first person I told. So that made a big difference. Um, To begin with, I wasn't sure that I believed him. And I thought perhaps he was just saying it. But as time went on, I realised that actually he was probably right. And and what what did your adoptive family say when you told them? So I told one sibling and then I told my other siblings and they were exactly the same. Um, Why on earth would you think we would think anything differently of you? It it has absolutely no bearing on you as a person or our relationship with you as as a sibling. And when I told my parents, they were really very distressed because they thought that the thought of me carrying that around and not being able to tell them and not being able to talk to them about it when it wouldn't change anything between us, um, quite distressed them to think that one of their children had 
lived like this for you know 20 odd years and had not felt able to say anything and just were completely reassuring and you know just wished that they'd known and that or that they'd even been told you see they'd know nothing about my background either I was going to ask that actually so they they did not know your adoptive parents no and in those days I don't think people did disclose very much even if they knew it I think you just you know not like today where you know everything about the child and everything about the child's parents and all the genetics and physical mental challenges that they may have had all that gets passed on but not then well we have um someone listening um who says they're a social worker Teresa, and they say things see things like this on a daily basis and they just want you to know that they think you're amazing for telling your story and being so strong uh, for doing all this on your own and i and i think that won't be a lone voice that person who who's filled with admiration for you, Teresa, because uh, it was just a very, very lonely experience for you. And although things do, people do talk about so much more now, mm. incest, although it clearly happens, is still a taboo. There, but, I think so. Yes, mm. I, th- I think you're doing your very best, by the way, to change that. But there's no doubt that people are very, very ill at ease about this subject, mm. aren't they? Very much so. And I think that... It's the one thing I've learned is that, of course, no matter what happened at your conception, as it were, that should not have a bearing on you in the rest of your life. No. But I think because it is such a taboo subject, people go away with the ignorance that I went away with. You know, you're going to have monsters if you have children. And, you know, that sort of thing that was is the way that when people don't talk openly about things, things get misconstrued, things get misrepresented. And if I can stop one person making the lifestyle choice I made wrongly, because if I had known then what I know now, I would have carried on my life and had children and gone on to have a family. And then then my work is done, as it were, because that's the reason I talk. And not just about this, but I think generally about people carrying shame and not being able to share and talk and and get some reassurance yeah then you know that we're in an age now where we encourage people to talk so the more they do the 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 more knowledge is shared i think and Teresa, we don't have very much time left at all but what is it that you have subsequently been told uh, about your ability to have had healthy children if that's what you chose to do that it probably wouldn't have made any difference at all. If there'd been any genetic hereditary diseases in the ordinary way, then possibly that might have been a problem, but that would be no different if my parents had not had it, um, not been related themselves. But the, the chances of me having a child with anything wrong with them would have been very, very slim. Teresa Weiler, who was speaking to us today, uh, any thoughts on that? We'll be delighted to hear from you, Jane and Fee at times.radio. And do you know what? There's, there are many things that are very impressive about Teresa. I think her ability to tell her story in such a calm and self-aware manner is absolutely remarkable. And also her motivation for doing it, because as she said and as she well knows as soon as you know that fact about Teresa that is what you see first with her Mm. so to carry on telling her story and more and more people thinking about her parents as they're talking to her I think is quite a difficult ask she could have returned to a far far less visible life 
But in wanting to help other people come to terms with something that is way more common than I think most of us would like to imagine, I just think she's a really remarkable person. It was good to hear from her. No, she sounded she sounded great. She was thoughtful, but she wasn't. There was no. Well, she wasn't sorry for herself. And when honestly, I mean, we could point to some current examples. But when you, you know, when you hear some people in public life wanging on, about help! The, I've got a hangnail. Yes, that sort of thing. Um, yep. You'll understand why people like Teresa are so impressive. And um, Freya has written to say, I just want to say thank you for having Teresa on. I'm 22. I was adopted when I was about two. And it's a strange thing to live with, and it's taken me a long time to get my head around it. I do think it's really important that we talk about it more and don't shy away from the topic. I understand what Teresa was talking about when she first met her birth relatives for the first time. About three years ago, I met my birth sister for the first time. And there are just no real ways to express how strange it is to see somebody who looks so similar to yourself. Um, Freya, thank you. And um, I I hope that, that that conversation with Teresa was something that you found um, instructive. So thank you very much for contacting us. Right, we've got an anonymous email to end on and uh, we are making a very swift gear change as well. Probably if that was gear one, we're going all the way to gear five in terms of humour. So I hope that's okay with everybody. Uh, Hello, Jane and Fee. I worked as an usherette at a very well-regarded regional theatre back in the 1980s. I'm already warming to this story, Jane, aren't you? To explain, a few minutes before the interval, we had to run for ice cream trays and quietly stand at the back of the auditorium. So far, so good. I collected my tray, ready to sell to a hungry audience. The play starred a well-known sitcom actor appearing as Napoleon. that's That's the first laugh. I mean, I wonder who it was. Anyway... The big dramatic end of the first half was Napoleon's death, a long monologue. Mm, No shit, Sherlock. (laughs) Standing there with ices melting, the spotlight suddenly fell upon me and my tray of wares as Napoleon slowly walked up the stairs from the stage towards me, both of us in full light. To move would block his exit and death scene. To not move ruined the moment. I froze even more than the chalk ices in my tray and (laughs) endured the shame. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and shared the spotlight as Bonaparte departed this earth. <laughs> Slowly and with great melodrama, painful minutes. As the lights came down and polite applause, I jumped into customer service mode, taking my tray to the front of the stage to sell. The actor's parting words of, get that idiot out of my spot, ringing in my ears. I could never watch his sitcom or eat ice cream again. Oh, dear. I absolutely love that. The guy's giving everything to that really wonderful and emotive time in Napoleon's life when he's preparing to meet his maker. Oh, and an usherette just standing there with a shaking tray of <laughs> I do think it's very funny when there's something about chalk ice and theatre, isn't it? Because they are actually a slightly odd snack to have in the theatre when you think about it. Oh, they're they? very strange. Because well, yeah. they, they're quite hard to eat yeah. and they're likely to tumble and down your top. A bit always falls off. Yeah, so, that's what I mean. Yeah, the, and everyone then, yeah, you're right, because then everyone walks out of the... Uh, of the theatre with kind of sticky hands or it's all it's just a brown splodges (laughs) yeah there's a part of me that really wants can you just tell us who that 
actor was. I mean, we don't need to... Just for our own personal Just for our curiosity. own purposes, anonymous. And, yeah. and you're anonymous anyway, so what harm can it do? Absolutely none, Jane. No. I mean, unless NDAs were signed, of course. Because oh, um, that was something else we talked... By the way, if you only hear the podcast, you're missing out on a treat because there's other stuff in the Times Radio Live show. And we did have a long conversation today about what non-disclosure agreements are. Yeah. Uh, with Mark Stevens, media lawyer to the stars, mm. and, and he, he actually knows, doesn't he, Jane? He knows the people who uh, have asked their employees, usually female, to sign NDAs. So when he put a percentage on it, how many people, high-profile people, men, in the public eye at the moment, have some kind of an NDA that they've issued to staff or whoever it is, he said. Terrifyingly, he said he thought about 50%. Yeah. But we should say it isn't just individuals, it's big institutions. In fact, we had a, a message during the course of the programme from somebody who says that they know the NHS uses NDAs, I can I can believe it. And certainly um, I think it's fair to say that large broadcasting organisations will use them. Are we safe to have this conversation? Have you signed an NDA? Have you? Neither of us can say. So um, what we do know about tomorrow is that our guest on the live show and indeed on this podcast will be Barbara Kingsolver, who's one of America's greatest living novelists. She is. And she was talking to us from her desk uh, in the Appalachian Mountains, a rural part of America, much blighted by opioid addiction. I think probably in our romantic UK heads, uh, I'm thinking, you know, Misty Mountains. Dolly World. Dolly World, that too. Uh, and I'm not really appreciating the uh, excruciating uh, rural poverty and isolation within many of those communities that she writes about in her latest book. So we will be thrilled to present that to you. It's also my last day before two weeks of holiday, so I'm afraid there'll be no nouns or adverbs from me. I'll just be giddy uh, and I won't be saying much. Well, that bodes well, actually. That's great. You'll enjoy it. Uh, I will enjoy it. And we also should say, of course, tomorrow is there's going to be no escape because it is the day that volume two drops. <sighs> yeah. Well, no, we don't we don't know yet what's in it. So there might be some Harry and Meghan. OK. Uh, and don't forget as well, you've still got time tonight to buy my Christmas present because rather embarrassingly, dear listeners, I handed over my Christmas present to Jane today. You know, you know what usually happens at Christmas? You give a present and someone says, oh, yes, I've got one for you. Didn't happen. No, I have got it. It's just not wrapped. Yeah, I've had that one before. <laughs> I remember once being completely put on the back foot by a very famous lady broadcaster who was on a programme that I was hosting. And she not only had she got presents, she had wrapped, labelled and made presentation pickles in special jars to give to everybody who took part. Yeah, well, I know who that is. Yeah, well, I was so... <laughs> talk about, never mind the back four, I was on the back step. I was absolutely... I was just oh God. Yeah. Can I just give you a little bit of a tip, though? What? If you try and give me Barbara Kingsolver's book, <laughs> there'll be trouble. What's your next disc, anyway? <laughs> You have been listening to Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Ben Mitchell. Now you can listen to us on the free Times radio app or you can download every episode from wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget that if you like what you heard and thought, hey, I want to listen to this but live. Uh, then you can, Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5 on Times Radio. Yeah. Embrace the live radio jeopardy. Thank you for listening and hope you can join us off air very soon. Goodbye.
Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.